0: Welcome to the Modern Lawyer Podcast. I'm Anand Upadhyay. Thanks for joining me today. This is a podcast about rapid change in the legal industry. Today, you'll hear an interview with Beatrice Saravello, B for short, who was a former chief strategy officer at Blank Rome and Kay Scholler, and now is a senior executive at Arnold and Porter. As a chief strategy officer, B had oversight for all revenue-generating activities, leading strategy, business development, marketing, and practice management for the firm, overseeing targeted new business and revenue growth, client development and retention, pricing, and public relations. In that role, she reported directly to the managing partner. At Arnold & Porter, she's working on the ongoing project of ensuring that the A&P K. Scholler merger go smoothly, both operationally and culturally. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy our conversation. B, thanks so much for joining us on the Modern Lawyer podcast. It's a real honor to have you on. Thank you so much. I'm, I'm happy to be here. So be the, the real reason that we wanted you on is many obviously, right? But one of the main reasons is that you have had a series of very, very interesting and I think forward-looking, um, borderline futuristic roles, I'd say, at, at law firms. Uh, you've been at Blank Rome and Kay Scholler. You're now at Arnold & Porter. And you have occupied roles like uh, chief strategy officer as well as other roles. I feel like you really approach the law uh, in a very multidisciplinary law as a business, uh, operational, strategic point of view. And I think our Modern Lawyer listeners would really, really love to hear your thoughts on where law is and where law is going. Um, And so I really want you to talk about um, you know, some of the roles that you've had, some of the experiences that you've had uh, working at some of the largest, most prominent law firms in the United States at a very high level. If you can, just kind of take us through your experience and how you got to where you currently are at Arnold and Porter.
1: Sure. I was um, pro- pretty much in, in, in the law industry for, for the better part of my career. And at some point, I actually stepped out and went to the New York Stock Exchange, which in fact, I would say, was the catapult to coming back into law in a different sort of way. And I say that because I was on the business side of the New York uh, Stock Exchange, actually generating business. And when I decided to return to law, I I was looking for a business job in law firms, and I was fortunate enough to be hired by Deckard at a time when they were um, developing a structure for law firms called practice management. And they were looking to roll it out uh, firm-wide. And they also at that time had a strategy. And uh, Bart Winnaker was at at the top there running the strategy. And, And it was a really amazing time for me because I took this job and it was the first time in my career that I was able to say that I had a business role in a law firm. I was part of developing, developing business and also looking at law as a business. And from that point, I, I stayed at Decker for a period, period of time. I took that to the next level of Lank Rome, where they were looking for someone to, to really... Um, solidify their practice structure. But I felt that beyond a practice structure, what I really wanted to do was really focus on the strategic part. Because many times lawyers, law firms, they, the, the strategy piece is oftentimes in the chairman's head and not necessarily something that's widely communicated, and or um, actionable.
0: And what and B? What did that mean at, at Blank Rome specifically to solidify the practice structure? What were they looking for you to do as the chief strategy officer at the firm?
1: So they had had the practice structure in place for several years. I mean, longer than Decker actually. But they felt they weren't getting the benefits out of that, and they wanted someone who had the experience of really running the businesses as business units. And so they wanted me to come in, but I really wanted, I felt very strongly that in order to do that, you really needed to have a definitive strategy. And the the, the business units or the practices, as we we would call them, would need a strategy that would roll up into a larger strategy. And then uh, practice leaders needed to have a role, uh, you know, uh, an accountable uh, defined role where they they were able to, you know, run their practices in a, in a formidable way. And each of the people within those practices would understand um, what their roles were. So they were, you know, at the time, and, you know, Alan Hoffman was the chairman and he was, you know, very keen on developing a strategy. I worked with the firm actually on their first um, strategic plan and um you know roll began the rollout of that strategy and with a new practice group structure in place uh at that time just about at that time kay schuller was sort of looking for the same thing um they actually were looking for a cmo and um they were looking for a very very long time and what i have found is that when a law firm is looking for a position for a very long time they oftentimes know. They want something different, but they don't necessarily know what they want. (laughs) And I was encouraged by a headhunter to meet with Kay Scholler. And I knew I didn't want to be a CMO because I very much appreciate the business side. I I, I like being in the business of law. And um, I went and I spoke with them, and they were very intrigued by what I did. And um, they said they really wanted me to join. And I had to think long and hard because I was very much enjoying what I was doing at Blank Rome, and I, I had to think through, like, what would it take for me to be the Chief Strategy Officer of Case Scholler, and probably the most significant thing was to report to the managing partner. And that's an unusual thing because, as you know, in most cases you report to the COO, and um, I just felt that if there'd be one distinction, it would be to report to the managing partner because even though you might have a tremendously great and productive relationship with the COO, you're still in the queue. And I like to get things done. I like to move, I like to move that wheel. And I just feel if you have the ear of the managing partner or the chairman, or if you're really interacting with them at, at, a, at a regular level, so that they get
0: to know your thinking, you could be effective faster. You know, and be so. at, at firms like, you know, at consulting firms, let's say, right? I mean, on this podcast, I frequently kind of, you know, especially when we're talking about the business of law, I contrast how law firms do business and how consulting firms, firms do business. And it's certainly not that, you know, consulting firms do business better necessarily than law firms, but I think there's some corollaries and some important differences you know in your role as a chief strategy officer in your role as someone who is charged with restructuring how practice groups operate and report up uh, did you start by looking at certain um metrics or statistics within the firm and say hey i'm going to judge whether i do a good job or whether i have done a good job or whether the firm has picked the right strategic path based on the following you know 3 or 5 or 10 numbers or was it more, you know, um, one number and maybe a general feeling among the partnership? I mean, how did you kind of measure success and what were you kind of charged with uh, when you went over from Blank Rome to Kay Scholler?
1: Very, very good questions. And I must say that at the very start, you know, these these new roles do not are not effective overnight, right? You have to build credibility. You have to earn trust. From, your, from, from, from the partners and in each of the scenarios, it was really um, finding data and, 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 and creating assessments for the firms to understand where they stood and, and have a better appreciation for how the metrics gives you uh, an opportunity to, to move the needle. It gives you a perspective of where you stand in the marketplace. It gives, you, it, it gives you a better understanding of where you should be prioritizing your businesses. So I have always used data and, um, to, 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 to support my efforts um, because clearly, even as a chief strategy officer, I don't run the firm. What I try and do is work with the firm, work with their ideas of who they want to be, God, you know give them guiding points through data to, to make them make to have them make their decisions about where they want to go and then once we work together to develop that strategy then you know i can facilitate and execute Do that personally i i think every practice is very different and that's that, that that's part of my learnings just in being in law firms for such a long time you really need to work with the individuals and you need to hear them out and and you need to work with them through change.
0: What does a number be that has worked, you know, not not a a specific number, but, you know, what is a metric that has kind of worked for, uh, you know, a practice group? I don't need a specific example, um, you know, or or it could be certainly anonymized, but, you know, a lot of uh, the criticism that law firms get, I think, from clients is, you know, uh, for example, episode five, Jason Barnwell, right? AGC at Microsoft talked about how law firms, you know, one of the the, the tough things, one of the bad things maybe uh, about their, the business model is that they're really just trying to get hours of wakeful human attention off their shelves. Right. And the best law firms <laughs> nowadays are shifting from that. Right. I mean, they're really learning the business model of, of uh, the, the companies they're representing, et cetera. But you know, a, a lot of firms are criticized because, so often they seem to just be like these PPP, profits per partner engines, right? And as long as PPP is going up, you know, everything's fine, right? I mean, but that's certainly not, I know, how you operate. Um, What, you know, aside from the kind of obvious numbers, right, revenue per lawyer, et cetera, et cetera, you know, what are the kind of numbers that you looked at in the business uh, of law and to, to kind of steer a practice group or steer a practice committee in the right direction?
1: Right. So most firms have a portfolio of practices and, and obviously, you know, profitability is, is an important factor in, in running a business. And but, but, but not only is it so you have a portfolio of practices and they're all going to be different because you, and have different levels of profitability, because in fact, you want to react to the market. You want to be able to rely on certain practices in some ways and other practices in other ways. But the profitability metric is, is interesting, not because of PPP, but it's interesting in if you look at a, the profitability of a practice, again, not every practice is cut the same way. It's simply a, 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 a measurement to understand how you need to run your practice differently. So if you say to a, a, a practice group, okay, we want to increase your profit margins, Let's look at how you're running your business. Let's let us let let's let's see what we need to do to do that. It's not necessarily hours driven right? Because different practices have different scopes and different pricing points, and it, it becomes a question of how you run it, which goes into where we are very you know very much now, which is how we use technology to make us you know better faster, you know, and, and delivering a better product, right? So, you know, many of the things that, you know, some, some practices are, are much more adaptable to technology than others. I would say all practices now should have a, a component of technology. But, you know, I would say profitability is meaningful, even though I'm not talking about hours. I'm talking about how you run your business, how you sell to the marketplace. How you grow your business? What does that look like? Um, and what are those efforts like? Um, what you know? What are the goals? Like, what are the goals of your practice? How much do you think you can grow your revenue? And how do we do that? And let's let's figure out if you are doing what you said you said you were wanted to do. And and where is the expansion efforts? You know, where are the, the clients where we can, you know, grow our business and where are the industries where we have that, the best opportunities and let's prioritize where we think we'll get the most value.
0: And I find okay. that fascinating. I mean, I, I find that, I mean, uh, you know, you're right. I mean, that is, that is pure business of law, right? I think so often lawyers view, um, you know, lawyers view their role as purely practitioners, but clearly when you get to a certain level at a law firm, um, you have to be a business person, right? Um, I want to ask you a, a question that's going to sound funny, but what has changed in change management, right? I mean, uh, you know, 20 years ago or even 15 years ago, do you think law firms were slower to adopt, um, you know, innovative changes, whether there's, you know, whether they are cultural, operational, technological at their law firms, uh, is, the appetite to change and uh, the kind of ambitious leadership directing a law firm towards change, a new thing or something that is maybe more possible now with the options available on the market?
1: So uh, I think that law firms have been slow to change in general, but having said that I worked at the New York stock exchange. It was very slow to change as well. Um, I, 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 I think professional organizations have, uh, you know, an appetite for change. Lawyers tend, because it's it's a, a profession, there's a lot of history around what that looks like. It's been hard to change the model. They don't sell widgets. They sell a service. Many times, while we would think that some of parts of the service may not be as bespoke as they might think it is, they... You know we've been able to you know move forward i mean i go i go back to you know i was in law firms when there were typewriters and then there were computers and 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 now lawyers have you know iphones and you know the, the the technology that we use today all of us is different than it was you know 10 or 15 years ago having said that i would say professionals have a habit as to how they work. And there's a comfort in that habit and there's a comfort in being able to be successful doing things in a certain way. So what we're facing now is introducing a different way to do work. And that's challenging because in every introduction to to doing your work differently, you actually have to invest Time. And that's you know problematic for attorneys, especially attorneys with busy practices, who understand what they do and have been doing it for twenty years. And and you want to say, well, what if you what if you looked at it this way? You know, we could actually give you back hours this way, and you could use them differently. And all of that sounds well and good, but the implementation of that right <laughs> is where the challenge right. is. Right.
0: <laughs> you know. You know. I want to get into. Um, you know, as I mentioned sometimes on this podcast, uh, you bringing out the crystal ball and looking into the future, but I, I want to ask a, a crystal ball question first over your career. You have had to think about restructuring marketing departments, secretarial pools. I, I presume legal assistant, uh, you know, legal assistants, and how they assist teams, uh, practice groups, right? Um. Uh, If you had to forecast, right, you know, 20 years in the future, right, something that almost seems like unfathomably far out, um, how do you think law firms will be structured? Not from a technological point of view. You know, I'm not talking about, you know, fancy screens like Minority Report, that that movie, you know, or any any like high tech stuff like that, right, flying cars. I'm talking about, you know, when you walk into a law firm, a physical building, who's going to be there? and how are, how are um, you know, uh, the actual practice groups gonna operate? Are there gonna be data scientists embedded in teams? Are the, uh, is law going to be you know, deregulated to the point where you could have a data science partner or a uh, software developer partner at the firm? I mean, how is it going to look uh, in, a, in a world where uh, the delivery of legal services is going to rely so much on you know, optimized operations and optimized technology?
1: So uh, I think we could take the lead by what real estate has been doing for law firms. And although I don't think that we have executed fully on that, uh, what you're seeing in the new space uh, renovations of law firms is much more collaborative space areas, You know, much less emphasis on size of office. I wouldn't go so far as hoteling. I, I, I would say that what the person looks like that supports lawyers will be a combination of many things and the sort of traditional roles that we have seen will evolve into something
0: else. I, I think the, the term hoteling may be new to some, some of our listeners. In the, in the legal context, in the law firm context, what do you mean when you use the word hoteling?
1: I, I I guess I mean not having an office and being right. able to operate from wherever you are. Most likely another office. Like we just like you would just come in when you need a space, and and then you you would you, you know po- possibly work you know from home or you know you should work from whatever your locations are. Right. Uh, many law firms have many locations, so. I don't think we'll ever get to that point. At least in 20 years, we won't. Um, Well, We might see versions of that. But what we do see is much more emphasis on open spaces, much less emphasis on the gilded hierarchical offices. And that, to me, shows you that the level of collaboration that's required in law firms, is is just is, is just very, very important. And that collaboration is across practices. And the, the hierarchy, I think, will flatten
0: out a bit. I think oh. that has to be music to a client's ears, right? I mean, that's uh, across a lot of the, um, you know, AGC in, in-house counsel set I've spoken with on this podcast and elsewhere. That is one of, the, the, one of their kind of pain points, right? That uh, everyone is in their little kind of cubbyhole offices working away, not talking to each other, um, and not not you know discussing how they could do legal work for their client in a much more directed, much much better way, um, and I think I think that is going to be very um, you know that's going to be a key part of, of what goes on and what happens going forward at law firms. Do you think that will affect how a client is potentially built? Um, will you know with, will the uh, op- more open floor plan? Um, uh, affect um, changes in alternative fee structures as opposed to billable hours? I mean, is that something that's also coming down the pike?
1: I really believe that there will be nothing that will take away the importance for an attorney to have a relationship with a client. And I, I think that I, I certainly fear sometimes that with all that we talk about, you know, with respect to technology and, and you know, all these things that could help with the practice of law, that we don't ever stop having the, uh, the focus that that relationship is very, very important and that that dialogue needs to always um maintain itself, and that nothing can take away from that, because that's where it starts, right? And all of the innovation that we do is to really react to the needs of the client. So our focus is completely outward, and nothing can take away from that. Now, clearly, clients are telling us that they they want to understand how they're spending their money, they're under enormous pressure, from within, they feel like lawyers don't understand the amount of pressure that they're under and, and with respect to pricing. And so pricing needs, to, that, that goes back again to what I was just saying. I think, I think that communication piece is so vital and important and there's a real need for transparency think clients have unrealistic expectations of what it takes to get something accomplished for them. But also, lawyers need to be on the ready to be able to be as efficient as possible and still deliver the highest level of service. And that is going to look differently than it looks right now, because not all attorneys optimize the resources they can optimize to be more, most efficient.
0: You know, with respect to the, the real estate kind of hoteling point, it, it just occurred to me that last week or the week before, I was on a panel with the founder of a law firm called Ramon Law, and they're up to 80 or so attorneys now, and they started out as a purely remote law firm, and I think they just opened okay. up their first kind of brick-and-mortar office ever. Um, But they, you know, they, they grew to 60 plus lawyers all remote. So I think we're starting to see, um, you know, more incidents uh, of that. And they, they were pulling in attorneys from top, you know, large law, you know, AMLA 100 law firms. So clearly we're seeing moves in that direction. Okay. I want to put away the crystal ball, although we'll, we'll bring it back. Okay. I, I I I that was I kind of brought us into uh, talking about the future, but I really want to talk about at this point what uh, you know, what you're working on at Arnold and Porter. Obviously, uh, you were at Kay Scholler, and uh, Kay Scholler and Ar- Arnold and Porter merged, and and now of course you're at Arnold and Porter. What is your role at Arnold and Porter? Because I think you have um, you know in in your capacity as a, a business uh, of law. Specialist, you have kind of been charged with tackling a lot of different problems, and I think you're working on some really cool stuff over there. So, um, you know, to our listeners, what is what is that stuff that you're working on?
1: So, my focus is on special projects, and in the first year, that was solely integration, and in particular, the New York office was probably the largest integration um, to the broader uh, firm. And, and that was a real emphasis on the clients where we had the greatest synergies and, and really making sure that we were maximizing the opportunities of the merger. And getting to having people get to know one another. And you know, we talked about culture before, and while culture might seem similar, there, sometimes the vernacular is different. And so it was really focusing on really, you know, creating a more cohesive culture um, and and environment for the firm to thrive.
0: Can you give an example of that? I mean, I'm fascinated by differences in, in firm culture. You know, is there, is there an example that you could give of, of how K. Scholler, I mean, look, K. Scholler and Arnold Porter are both. Um, you know, in, in the case of K. Scholler, K. You, you know, used to be, right, um, uh, you know, top law firms with highly competitive... Uh, you, know, you know, top attorneys from, you know, with really impressive backgrounds. Uh, but, of course, there's still going to be differences among that kind of cream of the crop merger between K. and Arnold Porter. What were some of those differences? So, well, I was, this is the first real merger that I was a
1: part of. And so what fascinated me, uh, and I did a lot of interviewing of of partners, to really talk about what is culture to you, what is the, what, just take, to understand the words they were using. And then I realized that many of the words they were using were the same, but they had different meanings. <laughs> so when we say honest in New York, <laughs> we might be a little bit more in your face and a little aggressive. And um, that might take... Someone back who uses the word honest different in you know, a much more is sort of gracious, not in your face way. Right? So it was. It's things like that. It, it's real refinement. It's it's real, really starting to understand each other um, from you know where you sit, and 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 that to me was it was eye opening, and and it, it, it was it's it was a huge takeaway for me because we do use words that we we say are the same, but they mean different things to us. And 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 so that was something that I um I I I took I took home from this. And the other thing and, and I think that this is really important and we continue to do this is we have our chair, you know, has you know small dinner um, meetings with partners to really have them see him, you know, close and personal because in fact, you know, Kay Scholler was a smaller organization, so large, but much smaller. And, you know, it was, how do we get people to really get them to really their partners now, they should know who the chairman of the firm is and get, know his thinking and, and how, how do we interact with him? And so that has been very, you know, a successful way of, of sort of, getting a better understanding of, of, of how we might do things differently, but how we can sort of get back on the same page. Does
0: that help? Yeah, absolutely. What, what's next up for special projects? I mean, after the merger is, I mean, that's, look, it's going to be, you know, years and years before the firms are completely integrated, right? That's, that's all, that's always the case. But I mean, when a lot of the heavy lifting beyond the merger is in your rearview mirror, what's up next in, in special projects at the firm?
1: Well, this year has been interesting because, you know, as you know, when you have a mega merger like this was, you, you need to be operational and there was lots of things that were going on to make us fully operational because we had different systems and so you want to be working and able to work and so the infrastructure of the firm really worked hard to, even if we were running on different systems, to make it all work and This year, I've concentrated on things where we've had, you know, maybe different uh, structures of um, administrative support and figured out a way that we could combine them and optimize them at the same time. For instance, I've spent a good part of this year looking at our litigation support services. Um, Both legacy firms had a very different style of doing it Um, one was in house, one was external. So we did a, a real evaluation, and actually we're coming up to a major rollout of what I think is um, a combination, yet an optimization of um, of a support uh, service that you know is going to be greatly improved. And we hope to be able to expand our portfolio and and you know use new technologies and and be a better a better product at the end of the day. So that's one thing. And I have several other projects like that underway where I'm combining um, different styles of doing things and then using technology and centralizing the approach and optimizing the approach. So that's been this year. Um, Next year, I would like to concentrate a lot more simply on how technology could make us a better firm. Um, And that's not as a Reaction, but more as a, a proactive approach, understanding what the client's needs are and really trying to figure out, you know, whether it's technology, whether it's product, how we can be innovative in our approach consistently. What does that look like in everyday practice? How do lawyers practice now? And, and, and how can we start to get them to think about practicing differently um, when it makes sense to do so? So there's a lot. It's very exciting for me, uh, as we all know. There's so much disruption in the market, but you know, disruption is opportunity and and that and and challenge and change and all of those things very much resonate with me and have resonated with me for most of my career.
0: D- does it make sense in the future from the from a business of law perspective to have someone? You kind of alluded to this earlier, but. To have someone you know from Arnold and Porter, maybe a uh, legal ops person, you know, call them a consultant, call them whatever you want to call them, but especially among the biggest clients of the firm, kind of embed themselves with the client themselves and you know be that liaison between Arnold and Porter and the client in order to make sure, that Arnold and Porter is using the right technology, is using the right approach, the right billing, the right you know everything, right operations to deliver those legal services well. I mean, is that going to be a part of the of the future of the business of law?
1: I, it already has. <laughs> I mean, we see you know more and more of these roles uh, in firms and it's the value proposition. It's, you know, why do you use us and, and how how do we make ourselves most valuable and someone really focusing exclusively on working with, you know, the clients to, you know, really greatly understand the dynamics and 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 then to put in place and again, you know, I'm all about not reactive, proactively figuring out how we can be the best in class for our clients how we can you know give you know be the value add so yes i definitely you know we see this role announced on a weekly basis so i i I do think it's an important role um, in law firms and um you know i i think that some firms do it differently and and have other people in place that are doing pieces of it but i think what's really good about the legal ops role the chief value role is it's the person who has this interdisciplinary skill who uses the many different factors of a law firm and brings them together to sell them out to the client. And I think that that's that's a a unique way and a a, a most – and that's a way of optimizing your resources in in, in the best possible way.
0: I think that's a really good segue to one of – you know, according to our our audience, one of the favorite questions that they hear on the modern lawyer podcast, and that is questions about the big four the big four are coming, and the big four are going to change the practice of law in in any number of ways, right of course, by the big four, I mean the big four accounting yeah. firms k p m g and p w c and all the all these folks um uh, how do you see the rise of PwC and and you know others like it, uh, you know, changing the business of law and eventually the practice of law? Do you think that's an overblown narrative, or um, you know, do you think uh, the AmLaw 100 should be losing sleep over it?
1: So I would say that in my experience there's always a lot of drama around buzzwords in the industry and outside the industry that doesn't mean it's not real (laughs) so when i hear the word innovation i think that there are firms that are moving on innovation and i think there's a lot of firms that are talking about innovation it takes a while to get the stickiness around something as broad a concept as innovation Um, and the structure around it so that it's productive. I'm I'm saying that only because I think do, are the big four a threat? Absolutely a threat or maybe more like a wake up call, right? Um, They've always been much more advanced than law firms because they've been much more on the ready for change. So that pressure is sometimes what firms need. To be able to say okay we really need to be taking this seriously because i think every every law firm wants you know wants to deliver for their clients and wants to do the best that they can but unless they're like prodded a bit to execute differently it's it's not an easy thing to to change the wheel so i think that it's good to have the pressure I don't think it's going to take away from what lawyers do, but I do think that the practice of law is going through a huge change, and it will look differently, and the top 100 will look different, and the way, as they, just like the space looks different, the way we practice will look different. The people supporting us will look different but it's not gonna happen overnight. And, and you know, we're still getting our arms around, you know, what does innovation really mean? And how are we going to approach this? And and what type of structure do we need in place to make sure, to ensure that, that we can get this done? Um, so exciting time, um, but I, and, and I, I, I appreciate what the big four are doing, but I don't think it'll ever take away from law
0: firm. I love that perspective. I love the idea of a wake-up call to, you know, to to the largest law firms, but, you know, across the board, across uh, law practice. I mean, look, this podcast is about rapid change in the legal industry. And I think, um, you know, to the extent that the big four or any other factor can uh, foment that change (laughs) and kind of increase the, the rate of that change. I think it's ultimately going to be a um, an, an incredibly important thing in legal. Although right now, definitely looks scary. Um, you know, I think we we can all understand that. Uh, in any case, B, I really appreciate you joining us on the Modern Lawyer podcast. I think your perspectives have been really novel in a lot of ways on the business of law, and I think our listeners are really going to appreciate hearing your thoughts on. You know, changes in real estate, changes in how teams are structured, and a lot of the work that, that you've done across uh, a few different roles. So a big thanks from Case Text from the Modern Warrior Podcast uh, to you, B. Thank you very much, Alan. Thanks for listening to the Modern Lawyer Podcast. We always love hearing from you and we highly value your feedback. Reach out to me at onin at casetext.com. Tweet at us with the hashtag Modern Lawyer and check us out at modernlawyerpodcast.com. We hope you join us for our next episode. Special thanks to the Casetext team, especially our producer extraordinaire, Abby Hadidian. See you soon.